Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Visit www.decisionbreakers.com to learn more and see how they can help you win the war in store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and today I'm speaking with Richard Schotten, founder of the behavioral insights consultancy, AstroTen. Richard comes from the agency side, working at advertising for almost two decades, where he started as a planner before moving into research. His specialty is the practical application of behavioral science and he's written for almost every major marketing trade magazine on the subject. Today, we'll be discussing his book, The Choice Factory, 25 Behavioral Biases That Influence What We Buy, which he published earlier this year and presented highlights at the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association's Shopper Brain Conference last month in Amsterdam. His book is a fantastic read and a great tool for planners, researchers, and marketers, and anyone else interested in how to influence consumers. In fact, The Choice Factory was picked as the best book ever written on advertising by 5,000 marketers in a poll organized by the ad agency BBH. But before we begin, Richard, welcome to Shoppernomics. Hi, good to meet you, Phil. Good to meet you as well, Richard. And um, so I, you know, I gave a quick summary of your credentials up front, but maybe you can build on my introduction and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, as, as you mentioned, my background is uh, in agencies. I've worked as a, uh, I've worked as a media planner on a lot of uh, different brands. And about four or five years into my career, I stumbled across uh, a couple of psychology experiments and was amazed at how useful they were at solving client problems. And I spent the last 15 years or so immersing myself in the, the topic uh, running my own research and trying to find as many uh, useful experiments, useful insights from the discipline that can be applied to, to client challenges, brand challenges. Interesting. So, so you kind of found your way into behavioral science the way many of us did, which is somewhat accidentally. Mm, yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it was, it was a, actually, it was a very specific moment. So I was reading a book. I think it was a book. It was, I think it was the, might have been the tipping point by Malcolm Gladwell. And about three quarters of the way through the book, he tells the story of Kitta Genovese, uh, who was murdered in New York in, in, in 1964. And that led two psychologists, Bib Latin and John Darley, to come up with this idea called the bystander effect. Mm -hmm. Essentially the idea that if you ask lots of people for help, uh, any individual is less, uh, the more you ask for help, the less likely any one individual is to come to, to, come to your aid. And I was reading that just after we had been briefed for a client project. We'd been briefed to try and encourage people to, to donate blood in the UK. Mm. I can remember thinking, good, you know, good God, this stuff is, this experiment that they've proved, this idea of the bystander effect is exactly the problem that we're facing in the blood service. You know, we're going out and asking everyone to donate. And just as these psychologists suggest, most people are ignoring us. Mm. So all it took was the tiniest of the tweaks to the creative. You know, we stopped saying blood stocks are low in England, please donate. And we started saying blood stocks are low in particular cities, please donate. So we ta tailored the message to the region. And that tiny tweak had a significant effect on the results. And from there, I went and, and tried to find, you know, if, if it could work on that one brief, well, could it work, could other biases and other insights work on other uh, campaigns? Mm, what a wonderful example. Um, and, and, you know, and, and a great illustration of the promise of behavioral science that small changes can, in fact, make, yes. have, have big impact. Yeah. Um, well, I'm really excited to talk to you about your book. Uh, I, I enjoyed every page of it. It was just really terrific. Um, let's start by asking, you know, there's, there are a lot of resources where people can learn about cognitive biases. Um, mm. so why did you feel the need to write a book on the topic? Well, I think a couple, couple of answers to that. I think the, the, the first point is, um, I think psychology is for, or behavioral science is phenomenally relevant to marketing. So even if there had been a hundred books that I thought were, you know, covered all the different angles, I still think it's such an important topic. One more would be, would be worthwhile. But I do think that there was a, a, a gap that a lot of books on the subject are quite complicated. 
Uh, I think unnecessarily so. I think a lot of books just describe the academic biases and leave it at that. Mm -hmm. And then also a lot of books talk about the same biases again and again. So loss aversion or social proof. Now, those biases are very useful, but I don't think they're the only ones. So I wanted to, one, write a book that covered some well-known biases, but some rarely discussed ones. I wanted to write a book where the main focus was not on the bias itself. You know, we had to cover that, but it was on the practical application of those biases. Um, And also, there's a kind of an aside to that. I write a lot about the research that I did. And the purpose of that was to show, look, these experiments, like the the one that I mentioned was done back in the 60s, that Bison effect. I try to show that those experiments uh, still works today. And then the final part was, I also wanted to write something very kind of sim- simple and easy to understand. I, I think there's no need to to mystify this subject and make it make it more complicated than it is. Yeah, and 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 in addition to all of those things, I think another you know, great aspect of the book is your focus on okay, what do we do with these things mm, now that absolutely. now that we understand the bias? Yeah, yeah. You know, what does it mean, and 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 how do we apply it, and not just um, you know, how do we apply it toward what you typically see when, when someone does take it to that level? And it's typically in the area of public policy. Um, yours is unique because yours is how do I apply it in the area of commerce? Yes. Yeah. I mean, there was some selfish motivation to that. That uh, I thought, well, look, if I'm going to do these experiments, I might as well do them in a fun area. So a lot of them involve uh, my experiments involve either drink or food, uh, partly because I think that that's you know a big commercial area for advertising but also it's a lot more fun to do an experiment in a pub than uh, uh in many other places yeah that's true and you know yeah. we all eat and we all drink so you know it's relatable whether you know yes your company markets those products or not uh, yeah um, ab- absolutely yeah. yeah um great okay and i mean certainly there was a a void out there for for you know the type of book that you created and so so thank you for for taking it on i know that was a a, a, a an unbelievable undertaking yeah, yeah. Uh, although the one thing someone said to me afterwards, and this is one of those ridiculous things that you kind of don't really realise sometimes the, the, the biases at play uh, when it's affecting you. It's easy mm. to see them elsewhere. But um, I think one of the things that made the book much easier than maybe, say, writing a book where there was a single theory and you had to maintain a golden thread all the way through, it is 25 almost standalone chapters. Mm. And that that made it a lot, lot easier to write. Because, you know, you spend a week or two writing a chapter, you know, you're thoroughly exhausted about talking about uh, anchoring or scarcity or, or the yeah. pratfall effect. But then you can move on to something completely different. So that element of chunking helped. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and it really, really worked um, from a reader's standpoint to be able to kind of break it into those, you know, bite-sized chunks and, mm. and, and address them um, individually. But but to that point, um, mm. you know, over the years, I've I've personally amassed a database of over two hundred known biases and heuristics. Uh, yet your book covers twenty five of them. So I'm wondering, you know, why did you choose? Why did you choose to cover those that you sure. did? Yes, yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't claim that they're exhaustive. And as you say, uh, you know, depends on the kind of source. But people say one hundred fifty, two hundred, three hundred. Sure. You know, is a huge volume of of, of biases. You know, in many respects, that's one of the real strengths of behavioral science, that whatever category or product or problem you face, there will be an experiment out there that may not solve that problem, but mm-hmm. it can give you a different angle for appro- approaching it. So there certainly are more biases, and I wouldn't deny that. But what I wanted to do was pick what I thought were the 25 that had the greatest application to marketing because as you say the key, the key point was look it's not enough to describe these biases the, the crucial thing is now what what do you do with them and so i picked 25 that there were very uh, clear applications to some of the major problems marketers face and i'm glad you did because it's easy to get overwhelmed when you're staring at 232 mm. biases and say okay where do we begin um yeah and, and it's, that, it can also be a little confusing because I've noticed that um, different authors seem to give different names to the same bias. Yes. Uh, what's it? I think, um, you know, the, 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 what's it? Goldilocks effect, extremeness, aversion, yes. kind of middle preference. Yeah, yeah, yes, lots of names to, to, the, to, the, to the same thing, so, uh, which can make it confusing. <laughs> As if know, it weren't confusing enough. Yes. Yeah. Do you know one of the things, like, on, on that confusion point, um, 
one of the things I've actually started doing more recently is I've certainly found sometimes if you if you tell people this there's this overwhelming range, it reduces the probability they actually go and use uh, behavioral science. If, if I'm faced with a brief or I'm doing a training session or a workshop, I will choose a, a simple framework. Uh, and I don't think it really matters which one you use. I, re- I like the, the British government's framework, the Behavioural Insight Team's framework called EAST. And it yep. categorises the biases into four easy pillars. So make it easy, make it attractive, make it social, as in popular, and make it timely. And then if you apply those four principles to your communications and the kind of relevant biases around them, it, it will help in, in, improve your um, your output. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that... Um, you know, by choosing the 25, you're, um, you know, you're kind of validating that these are, in fact, you know, good ones to focus on. And, and not just mm. by the way that you cover them, but just by the fact that you chose these 25 to work with. And I really liked all of the, the biases that you wrote about. Um, and as a side note, I also liked how you linked one bias to the next with segues at the end of each chapter. Oh, I, thank you. I thought yeah. that was really cool. It just it <laughs> yeah. made you want to, uh, you know, usually between chapters, you want to throw in the bookmark yes. and go to the next day. But then it's like, oh, oh well, now I got to keep reading. Yeah. Well, I would, <laughs> you know, there's, I think uh, the br- break in each chapter gives people the opportunity to, to stop and walk away. So I wanted to make it slightly harder to, to, to walk away between chapters. <laughs> well, every, every chapter ended with a cliffhanger for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but, but for the sake of time, um, yes. let's limit our discussion to five of the 25. Okay. Um, sure. and, I, and Frank, I could have chosen any of the five that you wrote about since they're all relevant to this audience. Um, but these are some of my personal favorites as I read the book. And they'll certainly give listeners a flavor for what they can find um, in the book. So, uh, so for starters, let's talk about bias number 11, the expectancy theory, where you quote uh, Ludwig von Mises, if I pronounce that correctly, who said, and I really like this quote because I think it really captures the essence, if you run a restaurant, there is no healthy distinction to be made between the value you create by cooking the food and the value you create by sweeping the floor. Um, tell us about this bias and how marketers can apply that. Yeah. So, so, so expectancy theory is, is the idea that when we taste a pizza, when we drink a beer, when we smell a perfume, we aren't just tasting the chemical or physical constituents of that good. Uh, that's not the only thing that determines whether we enjoy it. It, that the enjoyment is also partly determined by our expectation. If we think the product is going to be great, it's more likely that it will. And that expectation can be driven by external factors l- like the price. You know, if, if we have an expensive wine and people drink it, they'll think it, uh, you could do, they've been test done by, I think it's Alarialian Plasmin, mm-hmm. where same wine is served to people. Sometimes they're told expensive, sometimes that it's cheap. People uh, over, uh, 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 there's a significant increase in the in the liking for the expensive beer. It can be that that expectation can be driven by the the packaging. You know, I've done tests with beer where the same beer served in a fancy glass tastes better than the same beer served in a in a plastic cup. Mm. It can be created by the the brand. It can be created by the 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 the, the, the product uh, description. All these ways will create a, a change in the expectation of the good and therefore how much, how much people Years ago, I worked for a retailer and did um, you know, shopper satisfaction and tracking. And through our mm. research, we learned that the cleanliness of the bathrooms was one of the top drivers of store choice and loyalty. Um, you know, who, who would have thought that? But, uh, but as it turns out, that, that had a real material impact. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's that's fascinating actually. Because I wonder if there's something there almost about what what people kind of do. It's almost if you go to the bathroom, you think you're kind of peering behind the the curtain in the organisation, <laughs> right? And I find it amazing sometimes in the the big coffee chains in the in the UK, which overlap a lot with the uh, uh, American ones. You, you know, you you go to their toilets, and they're often you know pretty unhygienic right. and you think they spend all this money on creating a wonderful brand image uh you know they have lovely um shop floor but then you it does certainly make you you, you wonder when the you know the the kind of hidden uh, side of the brand is uh, uh less lubricant it makes you wonder <laughs> what else is less lubricant yeah i know i like i like the way you you 
you talk about that as like kind of peeking behind the curtain of yeah. what, what's yeah. really going on here. <laughs> yes. Well, I think we give it, we give, we give messages greater or, or signals or, or greater credibility when we think they are authentic. An authentic signal is one probably that you think the brand has given off when it thinks no one's watching. Whereas what it says in its adverts, what it says in its, uh, you know, upfront service is is more of a more of a claim and therefore treated with some kind of skepticism and caution. Yes, and certainly the you know the the, the guest bathroom and the employee break room are, are great indicators yeah. of that. Yeah. The other part, I mean, the one thing interesting for the um, expected theory is that you know, people might be thinking, oh well, you know, I kind of I kind of understand that idea that about price or the or the serving quality. But what what I found with some of the experiments is that the expectation often had quite had quite a surprising effect. So so one of the experiments I did was around. Um, uh, environmentally friendly products. Mm-hmm. So we got a, uh, we, we we got some washing machine tablets. We sent it out to lots of families, and we asked them to wash their their clothes with the with the, with the tablet. Yeah. And we half the people we told it was a green or environmentally friendly tablet. The other half that it was a a standard tablet from a, from a British brand. Okay. And what we found was that when people thought they were washing with a green tablet, even though it was exactly the same in both circumstances, they rated the effectiveness as lower, the mm. uh, cleanliness as lower. They were less likely to want to buy it or, or recommend it. And what we think was happening here was in this circumstance, people think they're in most things in life, there's a trade off. So they thought, well, look, if this uh, if this tablet is has a better ecological footprint, probably its efficacy will fall. And so therefore they went looking for those uh, kind of poorer blemishes and they found them. Mm. So it, it, it had an effect in a way that was quite different from what the brand might have expected. In the spirit of how can marketers apply it, um, you know, well, the, the simple suggestion would be, well, you know, set up high expectations for your product. Mm. But at the same time, um, you need to be careful to meet those expectations. You know, as the, the old saying, the best way to kill a bad brand is to advertise it, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, that same retailer, um, that, was, that was part of that retailer's problem ultimately is that it, you know, attracted a lot of people into the store where they ended up just being disappointed. Mm. Um, so, so I, you know, that, that's an important part of it too, it seems. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think... Um... What I wouldn't want people to think is that I'm exaggerating the effect of these uh, biases, that people are not automatons that can be controlled. Anyone that's worked in marketing knows how hard it is to change behavior. What behavioral science does, I think, is give you uh, an edge. It gives you the best possible chance of changing behavior. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about maybe moving uh, compliance from 10% to 15% or 10% to 20%. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, yeah, it's certainly not magic. And I think charlatans that claim that it is right, uh, right. should be treated with, with, with caution. And certainly as with everything else, Hey, you know, you always want to test these things before you roll oh, them out. Yes. So absolutely. Mm. One of the things I love about the behavioral insights team, I don't know how much you, you, you follow their stuff, but oh, sure. each year they publish uh, a report yes. looking at the, the, the studies they've done. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful because they, publish things that didn't work yes and if you just if you read the report you would think you know as you read what they were going to do you think well that's going to work it's applying <laughs> bias a and bias b right. but context is phenomenally important with yes. behavioral science and what works in one situation might not in, in another so i think they are doing a great service to the industry in, in helping us all learn uh, how to apply the biases as effectively as possible amen on all accounts mm, mm. So let's jump to, um, so that was bias number 11. Uh, Let's jump to bias number 14, uh, wishful seeing. And and this was especially interesting because like everyone else, I bought into the compelling story that purpose brands or or, or brands that serve a greater social good outperform those that do not. Um, Tell us about this bias and and the reality behind purpose brands um, and and the implications for marketers. Yeah. So so there was... um, uh, I think it started from this idea of wishful seeing uh, uh, by uh, Goodman and, and, and Brunner around the idea that we don't just see reality as it objectively is. We partially project our own wishes and desires. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I've been interested in is seeing over the, the, 
uh, I think increasingly over the last few years, that many marketers, I think, are slightly, it seems like slightly ashamed of the profession as if there was something uh, wrong with, with the act of selling. And I think that, and this this this, this kind of explanation is, is is kind of partly my supposition. We'll get onto the, the the more kind of robust experiment. But I think they've filled that gap, that void in a, in the kind of sense of, of, of being in a worthwhile profession yes. by uh, brand purpose. You know, this idea that brands can effectively be sold by having a, a kind of higher order of purpose, um, a purpose beyond profit. Right. So. What, what, what I did was look at the one bit of research into purpose. So I probably should stress, look, this isn't saying purpose never works. Sure. I don't believe these things are ever black and white as that. Right. Uh, marketing is a phenomenally varied, nuanced thing. So yeah. there are occasions it will work. There are occasions it won't. But the research behind it, especially this, I think the Stengel research, is is, is flawed. Right. Um, so the Stengel research, for people who don't know, essentially he worked with Milward Brown looked at their 50,000 strong database, selected the best 50 performing brands, and then looked for a link between those brands. Um, and he found that all 50 of the brands had a, what he called a brand purpose, a brand ideal, mm-hmm. which was they had a purpose beyond profit. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that got phenomenal uh, acclaim. Uh, sure Martin, did. The, the, yeah, uh, Sir Martin Sorrell, uh, lots mm-hmm. and lots of big names said how brilliant it was. But if you went to the appendix and looked at the methodology, looked at the numbers, it took about 40 minutes of work to show that it was deeply flawed. You know, that that basic things like what was being measured and what was being claimed were different things. Now, what I mean by that is, for example, he said things like, look, Innocent uh, has grown phenomenally. It's got amazing stock market growth. Um, Yet, and and he proved that by looking at uh, Coca-Cola's share price. So he says, look, Innocent had an ideal and Coca-Cola's share price rose. So that shows the ideal is effective. Mm-hmm. But if you look at Innocent, and this is true for 10, 15 of the brands, it is a tiny part of the bigger company. I mean, Innocent accounts for about 2% of Coca-Cola's revenue. So how can you argue that what Innocent was doing was in any serious way driving the um, performance of of, of coca-cola so the, so the data was flawed in that sense um the other big problem that i looked at was well theories are no good if they just predict the past you want them to uh, sorry they, they just explain the past you want them to predict the future so after the publication of the book i looked at the next five years and the stock market performance of those brands which was the um kind of Stengel's proof of the power of these ideals, it essentially, rever- it almost reverted to the mean. You know, it it, it, it dropped back from uh, this wild overperformance that happened during this, the period Stengel looked at to being much, much closer to, to, mm. to the average. So that was the second big problem. And then the third, I mean, there were, there were a lot, I'll only go to one more, um, was if you probed into the actual definition of these ideals that the product supposedly had, you then saw how, 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 problematic they were so it was things like uh moet and chandon exist to turn a drink into a celebration mm-hmm. well i mean that's not brand purpose as everyone uses the term right it's essentially a description of a champagne or or there was um uh, i think it was nokia exist to connect people or blackberry might, might be mm. um again it's that's not a brand purpose as people use the term it's a pretty much a description of the mobile phone so <laughs> they were they're not really this, this research wasn't proving what it was, uh, what was being claimed. Interesting. Um, mm. Yeah, and, and I like how in the book you talk about, um, and, and you alluded to this earlier, that yeah. you know marketers want to go to work feeling good about themselves, yeah, and so applying a, a a greater good purpose to their brand, you know, puts a puts a skip in their step. Um, and I've lived this; I can totally relate to it. I've seen it time and time and again. But again, we're all operating under that. As we now know, false assumption that you know just having a purpose, um, you know, isn't really the silver bullet. And and I like yeah. how you say it doesn't never work, um, but at the same yeah. time, it doesn't always work. Yes, and uh, we, we just need. I think, I think I'm not. I don't. I certainly, you know, think sometimes you can discuss purpose and come across like a like a Scrooge or a uh, or something equally unpleasant. And I, I don't want to suggest that in any way brands shouldn't have ethics. Of, of course, course they should, but I don't believe that the argument necessarily is that it will lead to greater stock market growth. Right. 
we should defend it on more solid ground, which is, well, have ethics because it's the right thing to do. We don't need to um, prove it with uh, re- research into kind of stock market growth. I think it should be something that we, we do because it's the right thing. That's, that's an ethical approach to me. Good. Terrific. Mm. Good. And, and mm. I think that nicely yes. summarizes the implication okay. for marketers for that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So from 14, let's move on to bias 15, which you call media context. Um, now, this is especially relevant and one I rarely hear marketers or inside professionals talking about. Um, but as you made clear, it's one of the most important aspects of mm. advertising. Can you explain the media context bias course, and yeah. what marketers can do to better uh, manage it? So yeah, there's, um, there's a really uh, lovely experiment by a guy called uh, Depp, who was at the University of Munster, and a, that's the basis of the, um, the, 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 the beginning of the chapter, really. Mm. And what Depp does is take a series of headlines, uh, puts them in magazines, and then shows them to people and says, "Look, how much do you, how credible do you think this headline is? How much do you believe it?" But the twist in the experiment, and he gets them to rate it from a scale of one to seven. The twist is that some people see that headline, and he has lots and lots of headlines. Some people see an individual headline in a high trust magazine, some in a, uh, a magazine that's not very trusted. Mm-hmm. And what he finds is that when a headline is seen in a high trust magazine, people score it as 5.5 out of 7 in terms of credibility. When it's in a low trust magazine, it's 1.9 out of 7. So in that particular instance, the context is more important in generating credibility and believability than the actual facts in the the claim in the headline. Now, now as you say, I think this is a under- rated and it's particularly over the last few years i think it's an underrated uh, area in the with the rise of things like programmatic advertising mm-hmm. and in general we're very we, 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 we're more and more targeting people by target audience right. you know we will pick uh, business decision makers or abc and one women or 1634s and almost commoditize those people. So it, we think it isn't, doesn't matter where we reach them. But work by debt would suggest that the, the same message shown to a, a business decision maker in a respected title will get a very different uh, effect than shown on a, a, you know, a much shoddier website. The problem comes, because people might get that, I think, in, in theory. I think most people would would, would find it hard to dispute that. But when it comes to our action, because we're often measuring advertising's effect in an overly short-termist way, um, or we're looking at the cost per thousand of reaching people, because there's, it's harder to quantify the value of context, it often ends up getting ignored. We get this horrible mm-hmm. problem where we optimise to what's easy to measure, not mm-hmm. what is actually actually important. So it, it's an issue, I think, that's becoming more problematic for for um, for brands. Yeah, and and just I want to just touch on the word you used, ignored. Is is it so much as ignored, as as in well, they're choosing not to think about it, as opposed to as opposed to um, they're just not thinking about it. That's probably a good. Um, maybe the word ignored it feels a bit uh, active. Right, but I think people make decisions based on the information in front of them, not all the theoretically available information. So it's what's in front of them. And if what's tracked are things like click-through rate, um, immediate sale, do you know what? The context isn't probably as important as the targeting because what matters is reaching someone who's ready ready to buy. But when it comes to building long-term positive brand associations and brand values, that is far more driven by mm. the, the the context, and because that data isn't captured, and we're not using it enough to uh, make individual decisions. It, as you say, not gets ignored, but not used as much as it should do. Sure, absolutely. As I was progressing through the the corporate ranks as a shopper inside mm. professional, I was often asked, you know, what what will happen to my brand if I begin distributing it in a value retailer? Um, which, which, you know, goes to the heart of the context question. And, um, you know, it's w- without testing, it's, it's hard to anticipate. Um, mm. You know, theoretically, you can assume, well, if you have a premium brand, then maybe value channel isn't, isn't the best choice for you. Um, but, um, but, but, but at least by asking the question, they're acknowledging that context is important. 
Yes. Uh, I like. Uh, I think he. Sir Martin Sorrell always has a as a good turn of phrase, and uh, one he talks about, which I think is linked. He's, he talks about uh, promotions versus above the line advertising. He said, "Look, it's a bit like cholesterol. Think of your advertising <laughs> as good cholesterol. You can have as much of that, and it's positive. Think of promotions as bad cholesterol." Mm-hmm. Because if you repeatedly do it, as you, you say, if you if you reduce the price of your brand, you're essentially training people to think your brand is worth worthless. Now you can get away with doing that a few times, but if it becomes the norm, then you are going to have uh, health problems, whether that's personal <laughs> or uh, or brand. <laughs> what a great analogy. Um, <laughs> I think yeah, he certainly had a great turn of phrase, also has a great turn of phrase. So I enjoyed this uh, this chapter on media context because it, it reminded me of a um, of a hypothesis I had uh, years ago. You know whether it might be possible for advertisers of brands with compatible equities to advertise together in the same block. So you know, so, so for example, if you're Disney and you don't want to be randomly placed before or after a brand that doesn't share your values. Um, you know, could you partner with, say, McDonald's or Coca-Cola and, and always run advertisements together in, in, in order to enhance the overall impact of all three advertisers? Um, does that make sense? And to your knowledge, is anyone doing anything like that? Well, the, the closest, so Channel 4, who are the second biggest broadcaster in the UK, have actually have, have done something similar. So they started off with what they called themed breaks. Mm. Um, and that, it began with, I think... Um, let's say there was a, a food and wine program so they'd uh the, the break i think would would be a, a starter a main course a dessert a, a, a wine so on so they, they, they did stuff like that uh one of the favorite ones was for the um lego movie the whole ad break was genuine ads that have been running for last month or so but they had been remade in uh so all the characters were lego they remade the ad but using lego pieces uh they had a knitted ad break as well i can't even remember the reason for that Mm -hmm. but yeah channel forum have done that but it has always been as a like a one-off special Mm. they haven't i don't think positioned it as something you can regularly regularly do so so at this point it, it will remain a hypothesis then (laughs) <laughs> yes, in a very particular sense, yes, absolutely. And I guess the interesting thing that then comes down to is also the uh, you've got to offset the benefit you get from harnessing these biases and the percentage uplift in effect yeah. with the increased cost because to um, to you know to run your ad with other brands, sure. it's going to be extra work for the TV stations. They'll they'll, they'll charge you for that privilege. Oh, absolutely. Oh, so, sure. so, so you've got to guess. You know, is is the uplift which you know you argue would 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 be delivered? Does that offset the the extra extra price in the in the media cost? Good point. Good point. Um, all right. So now let's go. Yeah. So that was fifteen. Let's uh, let's jump to uh, bias number eighteen, which is the Pratt fall effect. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and and this is this is a personal favorite of mine, and one yeah, of the ones that you too, included in your yeah. Shopper Brain yeah. conference presentation. And this is a bit unique in that it has implications for both professional and personal use. Um, yeah. so, so tell us about this one okay. and, and how we might apply it. So likewise, this is one of my, my genuine favorite biases. So the original research was done by a wonderful psychologist, a psychologist called Elliot Aronson, who wrote one of my favorite books on psychology called The Social Animal. So if anyone's interested in buying that, just be careful you don't buy. There are two books. There's one by Elliot Aronson, there's one by David Brooks, and it's the one by Elliot Aronson that I'd recommend. I think it's excellent. Mm. Um, and in, in 1966, when he was professor of psychology at Harvard, he recruited one of his colleagues to take part in a quiz. He gives his colleague the answers to the quiz questions. So the guy does amazingly well, wins the quiz by miles, looks like a genius. But then as he's standing to leave, he makes a, a small blunder, a pratfall. Uh, he spills a cup of coffee down himself. Now, Aronson has recorded all of this and he takes that recording and he creates two variants. One, the entire incident, great performance and mistake. Second is just the great performance. He plays, uh, he recruits a large group of people and then randomly allocates those people to either hearing one of the one of the recordings. So uh, after they've heard the recording, he then asks them, how appealing do you find this man? Mm. And the key finding is that people are uh, significantly more likely, uh, or sorry, the contestant is found significantly more appealing when people have heard the mistake 
than when people have heard the just the great performance. So Aaron's causes the pratfall effect, essentially the idea that if you exhibit a flaw, you become more appealing. And that's it. That is not just a, a finance laboratory. It's been shown in a brilliant real world experiment by Northwestern University. Uh, they looked at 111,000 product reviews and showed that if your if a review of a product was was higher than about 4.4 or 4.5 out of five, likelihood to purchase uh, decreased. So it, it happens in the the real world as well. Um, and I think there's elements of people find perfection too good to be true. Mm-hmm. So if you pretend you're perfect, they don't believe you. Mm-hmm. There's an element of most people think advertisers lie or are partial to the truth. So one way of getting around that is to admit a uh, a flaw you've shown tangibly that you're honest and therefore people believe your other claims mm. and then the final strength i think of this approach is that if you're really clever about it you pick a flaw that has a mirror strength so you're listerine and you go out and say you taste awful well what that is very good at is at the mirror strength of um boosting your perceived efficacy because most people know you know powerful medicine tastes bad so well if listerine tastes this awful it's probably got to be pretty darn potent mm-hmm. so the really clever brands pick a flaw the one consumers normally realize anyway and two has a um has a, has a kind of a flip side a flip strength typically after you know the day after going to a conference you, you don't really remember any specific mm. thing um, yeah. just because you've been on information overload for yes. you know one to two days. Um, but I can vividly remember the example that you used to illustrate this with a one-star rating. Do, do you know which one I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, uh, talk about Snowbird, that one. It's, this is yeah. great. So, so, so Snowbird Ski Review, uh, I think they were Ski Review in Colorado, and they had beautiful picture of a skier going down a mountain, and then overlaid was a one-star review big letters too advanced I think it said and it was something along the lines of I'd heard Snowbird was a difficult man but this is ridiculous every trail is littered with uh, tree wells or steep sh- steep shoots this is you know, I think ridiculous uh, not fun and Greg California one star and I think what they've done brilliantly is you know sh- b- b- by going out and saying that this resort isn't for everyone they the genuine expert skiers will think oh well this is this is great for me <laughs> absolutely and mu- it's, it's a much more believable signal you know the normal thing an advertiser would do is just go out and say we have amazingly uh brilliant slopes that the advanced skier was like but when the advanced skier sees that they think well that might be true that might not be true right but if they see that negative review what mountain that was really suited for beginners would go to those lengths of alienating beginners because the signal they are giving off is costly it's put off other people it has greater believability amongst the experts so i think there's a really great insight into into human nature at the heart of that snowbird ad oh gosh absolutely i mean who advertises a one-star review yeah and and of course that was the hero of that ad um it it absolutely you know grabs your attention and uh and says everything you wanted to say as the advertiser and 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 you couldn't say it any more believable way kind of to your point um (laughs) by by a you know a a customer review saying um who it's for and who it's not for very yes. succinctly well the other bit that you mentioned there phil which uh, uh is, is the noticeability you know your it's a very distinctive approach yeah. most advertisers brag if you go and admit some flaws ideally not in a important area if you admit a flaw then you will definitely stand out from your competition right Right. And, you know, but interestingly, um, despite its success, uh, mm-hmm. you, you say that the pratfall effect is rarely used. Um, why isn't it used more often? Uh, so, yeah, uh, great question. So I think it's this idea called the, the principal agent problem. So that was an idea uh, coined by a MIT professor called Stephen Ross. And he argues that there is a divergence of interest between the principal, you know, that is the business or the shareholder and the agent. That is the employee or the marketer. So he says, look, the principal wants long-term sustainable career growth. Sorry, sorry, long-term sustainable profit. 
but the agent yes they want that but they also want safe career progression right and what the pratfall effect does mm. i think brilliantly mm. is give your brand the best chance of success right but because it doesn't guarantee success no mm. bias possibly could it doesn't necessarily give the best chance of safe career progression <laughs> because if your business subscribes to a more literal view of human nature, they don't believe in psychology. They believe in a very uh, rational uh, homo economicus. If your business believes that and you go out and tell people that your brand has a flaw, if the campaign flops, then you'll be personally held r responsible. But there's this wonderful paradox that it means because companies that don't subscribe to behavioral science will never adopt this approach. However successful it is, it will always be distinctive. So if you as a marketer can persuade your company of the merits of behavioral science and the practical effects, you've got this distinctive and effective uh, approach at your disposal. Yeah. And, and, and that's not, um, that, that's asking a lot of people because you have to have um, be pretty fluent in your knowledge of behavioral science in order to, you know, be compelling when trying to influence internal stakeholders. Um, and you know, as as kind of going back to the reason you wrote this book, that knowledge is not readily available, um, or at least not really re not readily available in in forms um, and ways in which people can kind of quickly get to at least the level of understanding they need to maybe propose an argument but until mm. until people have have the kind of the knowledge and and ideally some um some experience um you know i know in my case you know when i kind of stumbled across some of these effects i started doing some below the radar uh, experiments so i can you know be able to approach management yeah. eventually and say well look you know we've done it here 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 and, and here's what we've gotten so um there's reason to believe that maybe we should be doing more of this I, I, I love that idea of below the radar tests that that is certainly the, the approach I took as well that what I tend to do is say to people look here's an academic bias that I think will be useful for your challenge right. here's the evidence from those academics that proves that it works however I've now done some experiments uh, that show it works for your particular category today in your market. So, right. you know, simple A/B tests, tests using their product on the on, on, on the street or in their in their shops. And I think you need to do those. You need those two approaches because there are many marketers and senior decision makers who believe that academic findings, psychological findings are kind of otherworldly, uh, mm -hmm. ivory tower, eggheaded. They yeah. think they're very, they're the opposite of commercial hard-nosed decisions they make. Right. So yes, I, I, I would caution people not to go with just a bias, complement it with uh, your own experiments to back it up to show that it works today. Yes. Or, or bring in an expert who has, who has done experiments that, that can, yeah. you know, fill, fill that void. Mm. Okay, so so rounding out um, at least my list of, of my top five is number twenty five, which is the the concluding bias, which is scarcity, which which basically means the less there is, the more you want it. And and this bias is one of Robert Cialdini's big six biases in his book Influence, um, and another one of my personal favorites because it's so easy to apply. And I, I like the way you talk about it because you also discuss anchoring in the same context. Um, so can you describe? scarcity mm. and an example or two to help listeners think sure. about how to leverage it for their own use so you mentioned robert children's book i mean that is a that is a very very good book i think oh, sure. back to 1984 but it's a, a wonderful uh book so i'd strongly recommend if people are interested in their topic that is that is definitely worth getting yes, yes. um so yeah as you say the idea of scarcity is actually it our desire for a brand or an object is partially to do with the inherent attributes of that of that brand but it's partly to do with um, how available it is and if it is seen to be in short supply it becomes uh, more more appealing mm -hmm. it, in terms of a couple of experiments favorites because i think it is uh, you, you i think you mentioned when we were chatting earlier that a lot of the listeners work for um packaged goods so i think this is a lovely experiment from a, a cornell psychologist called um brian wansink yes and he uses scarcity experiments that, that could be easily uh, repeated. So, so one of the ones he does, he, he, uh, 
Cam- I think it was Campbell's Soup. Yes. He has that in three different supermarkets or three groups of supermarkets. Um, all of them offer 20% off. The control is just 20% off. And people buy on average about three three cans. Then in the second group of supermarkets, it says 20% off, maximum purchase four cans. And the amount people buy jumps to on average 3.5. So mm-hmm. that's 15, 20% increase. So he's using scarcity there uh, to make the, the brand more appealing. But then what he does, which is combine it with a bias called anchoring, um, he says in the third group, um, 20% off, maximum purchase 12 cans. Now, 12 is a ridiculously large number. I mean, who needs 12 cans of soup? Right. Uh, but by throwing out this large number, people kind of take that as the starting place and they think about how many they need. They know it's too high. They work down, but they hit the kind of uh, the top zone of, uh, of the kind of reasonable number of cans they need. And I think from memory, they buy, I think, five, five, five six cans in, the, in that scenario. So it's a really simple use of scarcity. You know, you, the, the body language of the brand is, look, this stuff, we're only going to let you have a tiny amount because it's hurting us to give it to you. It's probably costing us lots of money. So it gives a kind of plausibility to the um, the discount. It makes the discount feel like it's sizable. Uh, it's then uses anchoring to make it a bit more effective. So that's an interesting lesson, I think, for people that don't just be happy using one bias. You know, they can complement each other and you get even bigger effects. And then the third is, I love that bias because most biases, most academic experiments, you have to make you know a lateral creative leap to think about how to apply it. I mean, that is a just, I think every package good, every retailer should be thinking about running those kind of false scarcity uh, promotions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, to get the same demand, you've got to cut your margins again and again. Oh, sure. And, and there's, you know, you can have a lot of fun with scarcity. There's, a, there's mm. so many different ways to apply it. Um, you know, and if, if you, whether you know that the, are aware of the bias and, and it has a name called scarcity or not, uh, yes. you know, we're all, we're exposed to it in everything. I mean, go online and try to buy something. Um, you're going to get, you know, um, you know, only three left in stock or, or, you know, you only have 20 more minutes to, to make your order. Yes. Um, so it comes in many different forms and flavors. It does. It's interesting to mention the, those those two examples because that the, the time that I've seen a, a site using that a lot is one of the um, travel sites. You know, the, the kind yes. of book the the booking type sites where you can compare lots of flight prices and hotels. And it does it does raise some questions in my mind. And what I think brands need to be careful of is how they measure the effectiveness of these biases because I do worry when they're used excessively and I think some of those comparison sites use them excessively mm-hmm. that it makes the shopping process stressful you know if you feel this kind of panic uh, at buying so it might be very effective in the short term but they should be putting monitoring in place to make sure it doesn't make the purchasing experience unpleasant and therefore people are uh, less likely to return. Yeah, and, and I read recently about a situation where um, it backfired. And, oh, and I, don't, yeah. I don't remember, you know, what the what the business was, what the offer was, or how the scarcity um, was presented. But mm. um, but it, it it's just another example of um, you've got to test these things to make sure it works in the Absolutely. context of your category and your shopper um, and your offer. And so, um, mm. like like all these other biases, there's no kind of um, there's no silver bullet. There's no, uh, you know, set it and forget it type of approach. You've got to, you've got to put a lot of thought and, um, and, and understanding into these things and then by all means test it, make sure it yeah. works for you and then, and then go for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's a, there's a, there's a worrying trend in marketing that we often try and, or, or, or you know, certain books or, 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 or theories, people present them as, as you say, a silver bullet, whereas reality is too messy. And it might be appealing because it makes our jobs much easier if there were a silver bullet because we could just apply the same thing every time. <laughs> sure. But yeah, it's a myth that's too good to be to be, to be true. Right, right, right. And so, so as I mentioned earlier, the mm. book covers twenty five biases, mm. right? And and we covered five of my favorites. Yeah. Um, is there one we didn't discuss that you would like to talk yeah. about? Yeah, so, so, I mean, generally, as you said, the Prattful effect is my is my favourite bias. I, I I love it, and part of the reason I love it is because it uh, I'm uh, 
you know, it, it's I love talking about it in presentations because you kind of think, look, whatever goes wrong in this presentation, <laughs> I, I, if I've talked about it, I can pretend it was all on purpose. I was using the practical <laughs> effect, so it has a special place in my heart for that reason. That's great. Um, the 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 other one we didn't talk about, which I I, I think is interesting, is this idea of the, the the fundamental attribution error. Oh yes. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a um, a Batson and, and Dali one, and I'll quickly run through the experiment. Uh, they. I think they were, yeah, they, were, they were Princeton psychologists. So they recruit a um, some Catholic priests, I think it was 40 Catholic priests, and they quiz them on their personality. And then they uh, set them a task. They say, look, you're going to go over to a church nearby and you're going to deliver a talk. And then as they're, they give them the topic. And then as the trainee priests are about to leave, they say to half of them, uh, and they're all, told this individually to half of them they say oh gosh you're you're running a bit late you better hurry they're expecting you five minutes ago to the other half they say oh we've got you've got plenty of time they're not expecting you for 20 minutes but you might as well go over there you can just wait in the in the in the vestibule mm-hmm. and then they send them on their way to the to the nearby church and they have placed a uh, a colleague of theirs on the way and that colleague is slumped up against a wall uh, pretending to have breathing difficulties mm-hmm. And that was the experiment. The, the, the psychologist wanted to know what proportion of people would stop. And when they're rushing, only 10% stop. When they've got plenty of time, 63, I think 63, 64% stop. Now, what's interesting, firstly, that is a strong argument that, and, and lots of other experiments that come up with similar findings, that the, 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 the context, like the, the, you know, rushing versus um, relaxed the context like that have a very significant effect on behavior right the second point which is why it's an error is people are awful at predicting that when people are asked what do you think will uh, determine whether these priests stop will it be their personality you know are they people who've claimed to be helpful mm-hmm. or is it whether they're in a rush or not people overwhelmingly think it's about personality they mm-hmm. don't think it's to do with the context now, if you take this back to marketing, you know, this happens all the time in marketing. You know, every brief I've ever received as an agent, as an, uh, while working at agency has always had a target audience on it. There are a handful of times the brand has identified a target context. Yet the work of Batson Dali would suggest the context is just as important as the target audience. The you know, whether someone's in a rush or the, or not, whether they're in a good mood or a bad mood, whether they're in a group or on their own, whether they've just been paid or whether it's the end of the month, these will have huge effects. And I think we don't pay enough attention to them in, in marketing. That is a that's a great one. That that's is that the first bias in the book. I think it is because it, 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 I think it sets up some of the yeah. others. And then the rest of the book is essentially is thinking, well, what are some of those? And, and I talk about mood versus life event versus groups. And, and, and like everything else, it was an interesting example because these were priests, right? And, yes. And the oh, fact yeah. that 100% of them didn't stop yeah. to help this person yes. was a little, oh. little uh, unexpected. Yes. I, 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 do you know what? Actually, I, I, yes. I've, I've got, um, and the other bit you reminded me, which goes to the kind of thing, our key theme, which is always test, yes. is one of the other variables they tested was what the talk was about. Half the people went on a talk about uh, the finances of, um, of running a, a parish. Mm. The other half talked about the Good Samaritan parable. You know, what could be more relevant than helping a man in need than the Good Samaritan? Oh, that's yeah, hysterical. It, it had no effect on stopping rates. You know, I would have predicted it would. This again, it's that thing of you've got to you've got to test it. Right, right, right. Okay, so speaking of priests, um, your book concludes with a discussion on ethics, <laughs> which is a big topic in behavioral economics. Um, I'm curious why you chose to end your book with this discussion. Um, I think. When I've gone around and talked to brands or agencies about behavioral science, the two questions that always seem to come up are, what, how do these biases vary by culture or country? And secondly, um, is, is, you know, there's normally a few people who look just deeply disturbed and ask, is this, is this ethical? Yeah. Um, what I generally try and do is, is kind of split that question into two because have people got a problem with brands uh, persuasively communicating 
um, you know, putting together an appealing as possible argument. And if it's a problem with that, then I think that's not really about behavioural science. That's right. about debates on advertising and marketing. So that's you know, one thing. Right. If it's specifically with behavioural science as a way to generate persuasive arguments, uh-huh. then I don't understand why it's treated differently from uh, using human advertising or, or any other means of creating persuasion. You know, sure. if, we, if we're going to take brands' money, then I think we have a duty to spend it as effectively as possible. Now, of course, that has to be within moral parameters. You know, you can't lie, you can't be dishonest, you can't be deceitful with these biases. They've got to all be, you know, you can't say you're the most popular brand if you're not. But that isn't a problem with the behavioral science. It's the, I think it's the underlying attempt to, 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 to deceive. The behavioral science part is a, a tool and it can be used for um, good ends or bad. Behavioural science makes your communications more effective. How you then use those communications is a, is a slightly different point. Well, that's a, that's a really good point because, you know, marketers have always been marketers and they didn't always have the benefit of available social science to explain why the things they've always been using to influence behaviour um, uh, do in fact influence behaviour. So, mm. you know, so if I'm a, if I'm a grocery retailer, you know, I put the candy bars at the checkout, um, not because I know that, you know, at that point in the shopping trip, uh, shoppers are experiencing, you know, uh, diminished cognitive resources and they're, uh, more likely to act on their impulses. And so there's no better place in the store to put the candy bar than at the checkout. Mm. Um, and that's why it sells. They don't know that's why it sells best there. They just know that by putting it there, it sells best. And so, you know, arguably, marketers have been using behavioral science. Oh, they just didn't absolutely. know it. Yes. Yeah. There's a wonderful, uh, the Tversky quote, so Daniel Carnell's partner, uh, and he said, and he was being self-deprecating, but he said something along the lines of, all I've done is catalog insights that used car salesmen and marketers already know. Now, he takes, I think, that too far, but there's certainly an element of behavioral science is not an invention. It's a description. It's a description of how people actually behave. And it would be a little strange if practitioners hadn't worked some of these things out because through trial and error, they've realized the best place to play, put the candy bars. Yeah. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that there is no role for behavioral science. I think there are two areas that are a strength. The first is it can speed up that process. You don't have to trial and error everything. Behavioral science gives you some big clues about what's most likely to work. And the second bit, and this is, you know, the practical effect uh, is an example of it, would be it tells you to test some counterintuitive things that you might never think are sensible to, to look at. Mm. So... Uh, uh, yeah, I certainly agree that practitioners have uh, have got there, but I don't think that means it is an uh, the behavioral science can't add add benefit to those practitioners as well. Well, I'm not sure if David Ogilvy would describe himself as a you know classically yes. trained behavioral scientist. Mm. Uh, in fact, I'm sure he wouldn't. But you know, but but he certainly had a great instinct for human behavior and and you know had mm. the curiosity and means to, you know, to certainly observe a lot and experiment a lot and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, to hone his instinct. Um, but, but clearly he was, and, and, and even today, um, you know, we see conference presentations where people use uh, David Ogilvy quotes. And, uh, and I just thought that was interesting because he, his time really came before the emergence mm-hmm. of, of quote unquote behavioral economics. He might have been after the emergence of the term behavioral science, but he was after the emergence of psychology and social psychology. Yes. So, yes. But whether whether he was a student of psychology, I don't know directly, or you know, or he was a very very keen observer of human nature and came to these uh, insights from a different means. But I think you're you're absolutely right. The best creatives have always realised many of these things. One of my, you know, we talked about the pratfall effect. Yeah. There's a lovely Bill Burnback quote uh, along the lines of. A small admission gains a big acceptance, mm. and he put that to effect, or his agency put it to effect with VW. Ugly is only skin deep. <laughs> said the cars were slow. Yeah. Uh, they said Avis was unpopular. Right. You know, and, and both those campaigns, I think they were 1959 and 1962. They ran before Elliot Aronson did his uh, uh, experiments in 1966. Oh, that's terrific! Mm-hmm. That's terrific. 
Well, this has been a lot of fun for me. It's been it's been oh, so great speaking with you, Richard, yeah. and and thank you for giving us a primer on your book, uh, which I really <laughs> encourage people to read. Um, and incidentally, where can where can people find a copy of the Choice Factory? So it's it's, it's available in most bookshops. I mean, it's certainly in uh, uh, Amazon in the states and the UK, and then you know, local bookshop as well, whether it's a Waterstones or Foils. Oh, okay. Terrific. Um, and, and, and if people want to learn more about cognitive biases or, or any of the other topics you may be working on, uh, what's the best way for people to reach you? Uh, so I tweet uh, at rshotton, R-S-H-O-T-T-O-N, and people can always send me a direct message on that. It's very easy to message me. I've got my mess- messaging uh, open. Um, so yeah, if, if people read the book, if they've got any questions about it, you know, I'd always love to Love to hear them. Great, and and I think it's um, I think it's also important to mention that your book includes the sources that you use to to discuss those uh, those, yes. those twenty five effects. And yeah. so, if people do want to, you know, probe more deeply on them, um, understand the context of the science that was used to develop uh, these understandings, you know, they can they can have as much fun as they want uh, climbing yeah. into those sources. I- Absolutely. And actually, it's pretty worth mentioning there. There's two steps. There's the studies are referenced. And then after that, and actually, it's a bit hidden. So make sure people go right to the back to look for it. Yeah. There's a recommended um, further reading this. So it mentions books like Cialdini's Influence, mm. uh, Aronson's Social Animal, uh, Rory Sullivan's Wikiman, Phil, Phil uh, Bowden's um, Decoded. So there's, there's, there's a few recommended books that I think are particularly useful for Marxists. Terrific. Well, I think people are really going to enjoy uh, listening to this conversation and will enjoy reading your book uh, even more. Um, so thank you again, Richard. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking oh, with you. It's been great to speak to you. Cheers, Phil. Right. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics. Shoppernomics.